thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we're continuing our study of the book of Genesis. We have so far covered chapter 1 through 3. And in those three chapters, we spent quite a bit of time trying to understand what Adam and Eve did in the garden. We, we, we first tried, to, we spent time understanding the creation. What was the message that scripture is trying to convey to us? And it was very clear to us that this was not a comprehensive book. Scripture is not the book about everything God did. It is more like a letter, a love letter, from a father to his children, addressing specific points which were important to the first audience, the Jews, who were then living in Babylon. This book was written, it was handed down through oral tradition, and was penned down while the Jews were in Babylon, in exile, around the year 587 B.C., And while in exile, they were confronted with the Babylonian civilization with all its splendor. Sort of like you take very faithful Jews and you drop them in the middle of Manhattan today. And they have kids, they have young folks about your age, having the same concerns that you have, some wanting to be married, some looking for a job, and being dropped in the middle of a pagan civilization. How do you react to that? So imagine a conversation between one of those Jews and a Babylonian. And the Babylonian says, well, all right, what's the name of your God? And first of all, you only have one. We have a whole bunch of them. You have one? Yeah, we do. What's his name? Why? Well, we can't pronounce it. Okay, what does he look like? Well, we don't have an image of him. Oh, you have only one God. Can't say his name. And you don't know what he looks like. Great. The pressure, the social pressure to conform was tremendous. Babylon was built on a, mytholo- on a mythology. Every civilization is built on a mythology, on some principles, on some ideas. And the Babylonian ones were, was that the world, man in particular, was the product of the blood of a dragon and earth. Half good half evil. Sometimes Catholics tend to fall into this trap when they speak of human nature. They will say, well, so-and-so did something bad. Well, what can you do? This is a human nature. Uh Uh-uh. This is fallen human nature. This is men after the fall. But the human, human nature as created by God is, as the first chapter asserts, good. 
very good. The world was very, very good. We discovered also that the first chapter of the book of Genesis is rational because it takes away all these mysterious powers from nature. The stars don't have any powers associated with them. Stones and trees and animals have no mysterious powers associated with them. They're just natural. And man is the summit of creation. Creation, in fact, is there to serve man. And man is the steward of creation. And all of this is in preparation for what is to come. It's essentially God the Father telling his child, Adam, you're, you're still a kid. I can't put you in charge of my house. I'm going to give you a mini house, a small house, a training place for you to prepare. And that was the garden. He placed him in his garden and told him two things. And that again go, flies against our assumptions about the Garden of Eden. When we speak of the Garden of Eden, we think, what? You know, the shades, the cool, the drink, right? Maybe you're same timing your friend, and that's how the days go by. Well, that's exactly, that's not what God t- told Adam. He said what? Till and guard. So work and protect. Why? Because he was preparing him for the greater mission he wanted to entrust to him. But then, as we saw in chapter 3, Adam and Eve fell. It isn't that Satan, the devil, forced them to fall. He cannot do that to to them, nor can he do this to us. But they fell. They fell. You would notice something absolutely remarkable, absolutely unique about the, the Bible, especially the book of Genesis. It is unique, and that is what caused actually C.S. Lewis to convert, to become a Christian. Is if you do comparative study in mythology, if you study mythologies and line them up one next to the other, this is what he was doing. He was a specialist in mythologies. And he lined them up one after the other, and when he hit the Bible, he knew this this was different. Why? Because it is rational, as I just told you. Number two, it calls a spade a spade, as we're going to see in chapter four. In other words, it doesn't try to color the stark failure of man. It doesn't try to give it excuses. It doesn't try to make it beautiful. It calls it exactly as it is. And I will also point out to you that if you read the book of Kings, for instance, where you effectively follow a chronicle of all that had happened to the kings of Israel, Actually, uh, Judah and Israel, both kingdoms, after the breakup, when Solomon died. You will notice that the scripture is absolutely, absolutely without any pity. And the refrain is, and so and so became king, and he did what was evil in the eyes of God. On and on it goes, he did what was evil in the eyes of God. Now you take that, that essay, written by the people. This is not written by foreigners. So unlike, let's, shall we say, the historical documents that were written by the Romans about Carthage, which were obviously biased in favor of Rome, these writers are themselves Jews. And I will say this, go and check the writings, the non-sacred writings of the Jews, The writings of the Romans, the Greeks, the French, the British, the Chinese, the Japanese, 
all the civilizations. Check the study of even the presidents of the United States. And you will seldom find such honesty. In fact, it is absolutely unique to Scripture. That's what sets it apart. In many basic ways, it sets Scripture apart. I'll give you two references. I, I, I mentioned C.S. Lewis. For those of you who are in the studies of anthropology or sociology or any of those social sciences, I do recommend you read a book by René Girard, G-I-R-A-R-D, Rini would be the way you say it in English, I suppose. He was a teacher at Stanford. He's French. And the book is called Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. It is um, a very powerful read of scripture in the field of anthropology, in comparative uh, uh, psychology, and uh, psychoanalysis as well. And in particular, uh, René Girard has a very powerful decomposition of the phenomena of homosexuality, which is today so tragically misunderstood uh, in so many ways. And he addresses it so well. And I'll be touching upon that at one point when, we, when, when the subject uh, will make sense. Things hidden since the foundation of the world. It's actually a quotation from St. Mark. Uh, René Girard, incidentally, was an atheist who, was, uh, who started as a literary critic. So he studied the work of Dostoevsky, a Russian author. Some of you may know of him. And that led him to the problem of violence. Why do we have violence in the world? And from there, he went to study mythology. And as he studied mythology as an answer to violence, as a mimetic mechanism to regulate violence, he stumbled upon scripture, studying in that light, and converted. It's one of those intellectual conversion where one was just sort of compelled by the truth to convert. Very remarkable. Today what I would like to do is start with chapter 4, and we're going to do something that I don't usually do very much of, and it's really a moral reading. So, for those of you who've been with us, bear with me, but it's worth repeating. Scripture, the Catholic Church teaches us that one very fruitful way of approaching Scripture is to follow what we call the four senses, the four senses of Scripture. The literal sense, the anagogical sense, the analogical sense, and the moral sense. And the way this was taught, this was uh, actually an idea by St. Anselm, who was a doctor of the Church in the Middle Ages. It's called the Catholic Quadriga, or the Catholic Wheel. You put the temple, the image of the temple, in the middle. And then you say, okay, what is the literal sense of the temple when we read the temple in Scripture? Well, obviously, it was the temple that Herod had built when Jesus was around. I'm talking about the Gospels, right? That's the literal sense. It's this building that Herod had actually built. Fine. Anagogically, meaning as far as, analogically, I'm sorry, meaning as far as, as, far as Christ is concerned, what is the temple means? And we know from John that the Lord told, told them, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And John adds, St. John adds, and they did not understand he was talking about his body. Therefore, Jesus took that temple as a sacrament, as a representation of his own body. Another example, when he was talking to Nicodemus, he told Nicodemus, just as Moses raised the serpent, so shall the Son of Man be raised, and he will attract all people to himself. Jesus went back to this very obscure episode during the book of Exodus, 
where Moses weighed a serpent of bronze, and that, and everybody looked at it, was not killed by the serpents. Uh, I'm not going to go through the details right now. The point is that he went back and looked at that serpent of bronze as a pointer, as a symbol, a representation of him. And we call this the analogical reading, where we look in Scripture to see Christ. The anagogical reading, the third sense, is when we look for Scripture to point to us the end times, but also the church, and by extension, Our Lady. Examples. Um, the people of Israel walking through the desert in the book of Exodus represents what? Represents the Catholic Church walking through the world. Hmm? But let's, let me go back to the temple. What happened? The temple of, of Jerusalem represented the old priestly order. And it pointed out to what? The new priestly order. The one instituted by the Lord himself. So therefore, anagogically, the temple of Jerusalem is a representation of the church. And the last is the moral reading. The reading that applies to us. Most of us, when we read scripture, we hone on the moral reading because we really are in conversation with God. We're trying to say, what is scripture telling me today? What must I do? And that's the moral reading. What do, we, what do we mean by moral or tropical? We mean this. You see, theology, theology, the study of God, if you will, right, is necessarily joined at the hip by morality, which is what? The way we live. What's right, what's wrong. And the church has authority over both theology and morality. Today, most Catholics, the majority of them, about at least 54% of them who voted for Obama, ignore the theology of the church and create their own morality. What do I mean by that? The Catholic Church teaches that abortion is intrinsically evil. Furthermore, any man who supports or promotes abortion publicly, if there is a man in power who is supporting or promoting abortion as Obama is. He's a very hardline supporter of abortion and we know that from his records when he was a senator where he voted twice to ban a law that asked to protect a baby in case a baby was born during abortion. The law required that this baby be allowed to live and he voted twice against it. He has one of the most strongest pro-choice records there is out there. So, anyone, any Catholic who votes for Obama has fundamentally committed a moral sin. Most, most Catholics don't know that. And somehow, there is this sort of assumption that if we don't know that, then we're fine. But we are actually not fine. Because sin is an objective thing. So when we effectively, by our action, our ignorance, our neglect of our faith and its understanding, when we do not do what is right in the eyes of God, we have injured His name. And He will call us to task for it. The duty to know our faith is a sacred duty. And most of us, unfortunately, because of the culture we grow in, because of many, many things, are mature, technically, so we have degrees from schools and whatnot, mature electronically, we know how to handle computers and the gadgets, but when it comes to our faith, we're still babes. We don't know it. So, morality is something that is absolutely 
is part of our makeup of who we are. And it's our faith and our understanding of the faith that structures our morality, the way we live. So, for instance, here's another good example that many Catholics don't know. And by the way, I'm here to inform you. I'm here to let you know. Because I, am, I find myself, even though I have a degree in computer science, I'm a geek by profession. I'm proud of it. Um, I find myself in this position of a teacher of the faith. And it's a very difficult thing to do because I, have to, I do have to render account of everything I teach you to God. One day I will stand in front of him and he will ask me, he will bring me to task because of everything I'm teaching you. And so I do have to tell you the things the way they are as they stand by the church and this is what I'm doing. So for instance, another issue that many people don't know, contraception is a mortal sin. And we've touched upon that during those lectures. What does that mean? It means you contracept, you're holding a one-way ticket in your hand to go to hell. That's what it means. God didn't die on the cross. God the Father didn't send His Son to die on the cross for a joke. Faith is very serious. And morality is very serious. And we are called to live those things according to the mind of the church. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we live them only when we understand them. No. We live them and then we apply ourselves to understand them. Because He gave us a great gift with the church. He knew how confused we can be. He knew how difficult it is for us to understand things and to find what the truth is. He knew that. So he told us, I will never leave you alone. I will always be with you and I will give you. I will make sure that you have someone, you have somebody you can go to for the truth. Someone who will never teach anything wrong in terms of theology, truth about God, and morality. What do you need to live happily? And that's the Catholic Church. That's what he did. That's why he came to die for. And because he died for the church, he loves the church to death. That's the call. That's the Catholic call. And you know what? Those Jews living in Babylon had the same problem. It's the same story. It's just a continuation. We're living what they're living. We live in a world that is hostile to the teachings of the church. They lived in a world that was hostile to the people of Israel. No difference. The fundamentals are the same. So going back to what I'm telling you, the fourth sense, the moral sense, it must be built upon the literal sense. We can't fabricate morality. I can't just sit in my room and say, oh well, you know, divorce is fine for me because of my circumstances, but it might be fine for somebody else because of his circumstances. We don't fabricate morality. We cannot make morality. Because if we do, you know what we're doing? We're doing exactly what Adam and Eve did. You shall know good and evil. Meaning you will fabricate your own good and evil to go by. You will be like God. Morality and theology are the makeup, the property, the ownership of God alone. Our job is to understand them and to live them. And by living them, we will attain to truth. And the truth will set us free. So, those are the four senses. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. What happened to Christ? He was put on a cross, and his body was destroyed. Right? What happens to us when we die? Our body is destroyed, just like the temple. 
What will happen to the church at the end of time? The earthly church will be gone. Christ rose from the dead. That temple of Jerusalem became the church. When we die, we rise with Christ. and We become, we become like Him. Our body becomes supernatural, glorified. And the church, at the end of time, becomes only the church glorious in heaven. So you see the four senses and how they work. Usually, in this Bible study, we focus only on the literal sense. We try to understand the meaning of Scripture in its original context, because it's the foundation from which we can derive all the other senses in a very um, proper way, in a way that does not contradict neither Scripture nor the church. But tonight, for a very specific reason, I want to walk you through a moral journey in chapter 4. And you will see why as we walk through it. Chapter 4 is right after the fall. And it seems very easy when you read it. You read it on the surface of it. it just, you can go very quickly and, and it looks very easy. But as soon as you slow down and you start digging in it, many, many questions question will arise. And tonight, I'm going to be the one asking the questions. And I would like you to think about it, and then next week we'll dive in it. And we'll try to really understand what God has in mind for us. Every one of us are called here for a specific reason, because God wants to tell us something. There's something that He wants for each one of us. And He has thought about this moment before the beginning of time. It's a date. You have a date with God. And he has something for you. If you look at it this way, if you understand there is nothing that happens out of accident. But if you understand that God is always leading us. Then it gives us a certain heightened awareness of his presence in our life. And we be much more careful and much more attentive to what he wants to tell us. We become aware of his presence and we start living our life biblically. As we ought. So chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve his wife. So let me read a little bit before. So we can just. Uh, verse 20 of chapter 3. The man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins. And clothed them. And the Lord God said. Behold the man has become like one of us. Knowing good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand. And take also the tree of life. And eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So effectively, Adam and Eve are driven out of Eden. There is an interesting passage here which highlights the sort of latent enmity we have with God. Because we hear certain things in Scripture and our thoughts immediately turn against God. So, here's a perfect example. And the Lord God uh, sorry, here. Said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, that's the reason why God is driving Adam and Eve out of the garden. What does it sound like on the surface of it? Sounds like God is saying, hey, Adam and Eve has found out where the goods are. But we just we don't want to share it with them. 
Let's kick them out before they get to them. Looks like God is stingy. Just don't want to share. Do you see it? Do you see that? Do you see this mechanism where it sounds as if God is basically saying, I just don't want him to get to this tree of life. It's ours, so let's kick them out. Or put differently, why is God intent on not allowing Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of life? Why? What would be the reason that would effectively disallow Adam and Eve to eat from that tree? Exactly. They'll be out, they will not be, there will be no salvation for them. What is hidden behind this text is the shadow of the cross. To understand this text, you can imagine if you had a child who was a drug addict. And suppose you had a medication, or rather uh, some vitamins that would strengthen muscles. But in a drug addict, it would simply increase his addiction. What would you do? Would you let him have this good? Or would you shy him away from it? If you love him, you'd make sure he goes to a detox center where he's going to be away from those pills and everything else. For him, it would seem as if you hate him because it seems as if you're taking away that thing that he likes so much. But it is truly an act of love on your part because you want him to get out of where he is so that he can recover. That's exactly what God is doing. It is an act of love. But we have to always keep in mind that our fallen nature sets us against God. And only the grace of the Holy Spirit turns that around. You know, you hear a lot of people saying, well, you know, you just have to follow the dictate of your conscience. Just do what your conscience tells you. That's half the truth. That's half the truth. Yes, you would do what your conscience tells you, provided that your conscience is well-formed. Conscience on its own cannot tell a truth from a lie. Your conscience and my conscience cannot tell the truth from a lie. You want a simple proof? Here we go. Suppose you're on the phone and I just borrowed your car. I just drove away 10 minutes ago. And I call you and I say something absolutely terrible happened. Your car is totaled. And then five minutes later I'll add, haha, April's fool day. What happens? There's a Sort of a short circuit. You're kind of standing on the line. You don't know which way to go. Is he pulling my leg? Or was he saying the truth? Your conscience and my conscience cannot tell. Why? Because what forms the conscience is all the external senses. Everything that hits the senses is what, what permits conscience to be formed. And therefore... If what hits the senses is a lie, your conscience and mine will be torqued to believe in a lie. And so you have people who are sincere, but they are sincerely wrong. Therefore, conscience presupposes what? That just like a compass, it is directed to the truth. And what is the truth? The truth is not a word, it's a person, and he's behind me. And it's only when our conscience is oriented to Christ that it becomes a source of wisdom. Without that orientation, it's a source of folly. Not to be trusted. 
God pulled them out of the garden for that reason. Now, let's follow in chapter 4. Now, Adam knew Eve his wife. Now, stop right there. Put yourself, I want you to think that you're the writer. You're the sacred writer writing this text. You just hit that point where Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden. What would be the first thing that comes to your mind? What would you write about? Let me put it to you in more concrete terms. You're writing about your parents. Say your parents were in Iraq. And they just got kicked out. And you're writing a diary. What would you write about? Pardon? Where they went. What else? What happened? What would you write about also? Won't you report on the suffering? On the, on the, on the hardship they went through? On any, won't you talk about their state? Okay. Adam and Eve just got kicked out of paradise. You, you're with me? It's like you, you, you lived in the Marriott all your life, and I'm dropping you right now in, a, in the middle of uh, the desert. And there's nothing. I mean, that's the sort of impact it must have had on them. You're with me? You, you, can, you, can you imagine what they're going through right now? Okay? And what is sacred author talking about? Sex. Adam knew his wife. Knew is essentially to have a relationship with your wife. Not knew as in, let me, honey, sit down. Let me just, you know, study you for two seconds here and write a report. <laughs> it's, do you see how incongruous this is? you see how strange it is? I mean, that would be a moment for that Scott Hahn would say, a holy Hahn. What? We're so used to the text, we just can't even think about it. But if you really slow down and put yourself in their shoes, or imagine how you would report about it, would that be the first thing you would talk about? Would you? I'm taking that silence for a yes. No, of course not. So what's going... It's strange. It's like he just took... He took a classical... Piece by Beethoven, and just injected in the middle of it, you know, some hard rock. That's what happened right now. But our minds are so used to it that we just can't, we don't see it. Why did he do that? Yes. Very good question. The question is, well, it's just a new chapter. Can't you just assume that it's a completely different section? See, this business of chapter and verses is artificial. This was created in, uh, what was it, the 17th century as a way to refer back to Scripture. But when you read Scripture in the original, it's just one long scroll. There are no divisions. But what I'm trying to explain is that when you read it in the text, there's no, there's no stopping. There's no... Right? But, but let, let's take your point. Let's assume it's five years later. I'll put the question back to you. These two people got kicked out from their country. Right? And the screen blacks out and says five years later. What would you be talking about the first thing five years later? <laughs> I agree. But would that be the first thing you'd bring, you'd bring up? Okay. Do you see the point? Do you see how strange it is? It's strange. And there's a real fundamental reason why he's doing that. I want you to think about it. I'm not going to tell you right now. 
want you to think about why is it that the first thing he says is, and Adam is, it's a good suggestion. I want you to take that suggestion and think about it in terms of people who, have, who left their country in really tough situations. And you're talking about their lives. Right? And let's say they got stuck in New York somewhere. And let's assume they're bored. I just want you to think about it. Okay? And we'll come back to answers next week. Because when I say think, I do hope you take that in prayer and sit down and read this text and just imagine the Lord is in front of you and you're asking Him these questions. This is how you pray. Right? So this is how you pray aside from the Santa Claus prayer. Right? Lord, pray for so-and-so and so-and-so ask me to pray for him. It's the, you know, sit down and make your list. Well, that's nice and that's good. But that's not the most important prayer. You imagine if you had a really good friend and every time you, go, you went to see your friend, every single time you went to see your friend, you sit in front of your friend and you go, okay, here's what I need. And that's all you do. Once you've done your list of what you need, bye. Not, hello, how are you? I'm so glad to see you. Hey, this is what happened to me. You know, we're so good at chatting with our friends on the phone. Well, why can't we just chat with the Lord? Why is it so complicated? It's the same thing, right? Same thing. So you take that in prayer. Spend 15 minutes, 15 minutes of your day doing that kind of prayer. Lord, here's what happened to me today. And not necessarily to ask Him for everything, just to be with Him. If you really love Him, you want to be with Him. Because you want to be with the people you love. So, verse 1. I've got 23 to go. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Okay, what's wrong here? I mean, what's strange? Anybody can point to something really strange? Where's Adam? Adam knew his wife. Right? She conceived and she bore and she said, Where is he? Well, not anymore, I hope. But my point is, where is he? Think about it. Where is that guy? And again, she bore his brother, she bore his brother Abel. Notice the focus. Notice the focus. And anybody, anytime you hear somebody coming to you and saying, all oh, this Bible is patriarchal stuff, blah, 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 blah. These are people not reading scripture prayerfully. I want you to notice the very specific point of view of the author. Who is he sympathizing with here? Who is he caring about? Who is he thinking about? Who is he talking about? What is he trying to say to people who lived 2,000 years ago with a specific moral conduct? What is he saying to us today? There's a fundamental lesson that is spoken here, but it will not be given to us on a silver platter. If when we say and pr- sit and pray, that treasure that is hidden, we will find. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. Obviously you notice the very um, telegraphic style. The whole chapter is written in a telegraphic style. By this I mean... Events happen here, then we jump 20 years, then we jump, we jump, we jump. He's only honing on very specific events because it is something he wants to tell us. He's not trying to write a compendium of history down to the minutest details. 
He's trying to say something. And you know what? People of his time would have filled the blank. Our problem is that we fill the blank with more blank. And we really have a hard time understanding this text because that context, that history, the culture is something we don't have anymore. We lost. We're not living in a biblical culture anymore. So the text becomes foreign to us, harder to understand. We have to bring it back. That's the literal sense. That's where we do our work. But for now, you notice that it says, Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain, a tiller of the ground. Like who? Huh. Not funny? God has a love story with, with shepherds. Right? I mean, what was David? What was Moses doing when he called him? Right? To whom the angels appeared to tell the good news. Right? So, you want to be a friend of God? Buy a sheep. Just kidding. <laughs> so, there is definitely something here that is pointing out to us. Why is it important? Let me tell you why. I'll give you this one answer. Because in the law of Exodus, derived from the law of Exodus, those who are shepherds are effectively unclean. Whereas those who till the ground are clean. So in the, in the, in the Jewish context, the message that is being passed here is, here's the guy who is clean, here's the guy who is unclean, and look what happens. Jesus told a very similar story in St. Luke. What was it called? It's one of the most beautiful stories in the Gospel of St. Luke, right? The Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, right? The priest comes by, and the Pharisee comes by, they don't touch the guy, because then it would be unclean. You're not supposed, supposed to touch somebody who is not from your faith. You would be unclean. That's why they don't touch him. And a Samaritan who is Himself is a guy who is unclean, looks at him, has pity on him, and takes care of him. Right? The echo is here. When Jesus was speaking about the Samaritan, he's bringing them back to Cain and Abel, because a little bit later, he is going to specifically mention Cain and Abel. Alright. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock. Do you see the difference? That one is easy. You should spot it right away. Cain brought an offering of the ground and Abel brought of the firstlings. What does that word mean? The best. The choicest. Okay? And of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Why did he have regard for Abel and his offering? Because his offering indicated his intention. His intention was upright and good. He really meant to offer something to God. He's doing a sacrifice. He's taking the best portion and he's offering the best. We tend to offer God the last. The last minutes we have of the day is, are reserved for prayer. The last thing we think about in our day is God. We don't start our day thinking about Him. We don't our day end it. We don't. And then we don't. When, and then when we need Him, He doesn't answer our prayer. And we wonder why. And this is exactly what's going to happen here. Why did He have regard to Abel? 
because of what he did. What he did. Watch the language. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So why was he angry? Notice. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is couching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. We're going to study this passage a little bit slower. We're going to spend a little bit of time on it next week, but I want to point something out to you. If you have some Protestant friends who tell you all you need is faith, right? Word doesn't, you know, work doesn't do anything. Point them to this passage, please. He's not saying if you have faith or if you don't have faith. He's saying if you do well or if you do not do well. By their fruits you shall know them. Alright? Its desire is for you, but you must master it. This is amazing. I know you don't yet appreciate the incredible, powerful... This chapter is a masterpiece. It's an absolute masterpiece. How many of you... Anybody here studying psychology? Anybody in the... Don't say... Okay. Get two. two. Anybody doing any socio, you know, science and sociology? Any... What are you all, engineers or something? <laughs> I'm going to call this the School of Engineering Bible Study. That's so funny. Okay, well, if you really try to look at the psychology behind the text, the psychology of sin, it is incredible. How is it that a text written about 4,000, uh, you know, um, but 2,600 years ago, written and known for at least 3,000 years, had this clarity of thought about the human psyche. How is it that it knew exactly what ails the human heart with such precision? This is very precise text. It is amazing. You compare this kind of text, you do a comparative study of this text to text of the same age, of the same periods, there's no comparison possible. Nothing has been written with this kind of clarity. And we'll see why, hopefully next week. I promise you, I spent only one hour on this chapter. You can see, we can be here for at least 20. There's so much going on. I'm going to have to kind of select certain things. I, can't touch up, I cannot touch up on everything in this chapter. Now, Cain said to Abel, his brother, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now we know he was angry. He was angry because he was envious. Two words we tend to get upside down. Envy and jealousy. We say, I envy you, when we mean I am jealous. And we say, he's jealous, when we mean he's envious. Let's define terms. Envy is when we, when we seek to destroy what the other has. That's envy. Jealousy is when we seek to acquire what the other has. Envy is always sinful. Always, always, because it seeks an evil, the destruction of a good that someone else has. Jealousy may or may not be evil. If, for instance, you're jealous of St. Paul... It's wonderful. 
go for it. That means you want to have what, you, what he has. You can ask for it. There's nothing wrong with this. Jealousy will then spur you on. Right? But envy is taking away what he has. And this is exactly what he did. He wasn't jealous. He wasn't trying to say, Oh, look, his offering was accepted. I want to do everything next time. I'm going to get those organic pomegranates and the best possible fruits I got. And I'm going to get that. I will. No. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want that. He wants to take away what Abel has. And he does it in cold blood murder. He planned it. You see now the connection between emotions and our action? Emotions, if left unchecked, torque conscience. Emotions on their own are neither good nor bad. They're like the clouds. They come and they go. Right? These, these days people think, in order for me to be married, I have to feel in love all the time. Well, good luck. <laughs> I mean it in a proper sense. It's not even healthy. You can't feel the same thing all the time. If you did, you'd be, I don't know, there'd be something wrong with you. Right? People will get tired of you. Imagine somebody happy all the time. Right? Walking around. Non-stop. I mean, non-stop. You know something is wrong. It's not natural. Em- right? Emotions come and go like the cloud. You don't base a decision to marry somebody on these things. You'd be fickle. You base it on your act of will. I will, no matter what, to love this person. To do what is right for him or her. That is love, as we see it on the cross. That is the foundation of love. It's an act of will. But emotions, if left unchecked, will torque the will. And will torque conscience. And will make us call what is evil good and what is good evil. And we will sincerely believe it. That's why he says, sin is crouching. Its desire is for you. This word is so powerful and so correct. And so correct, as we will see. No, no, no. It's uh, just a matter of speech. He means, you are, there is a very strong temptation for you. But the end of it is going to be, sin, is going to be a sin. And notice the moral language. Sin. And you will notice how little our own behavior tends to be truly Catholic. Because how often do you say to your friends, don't do that, it's sinful. We tend to say to our friends, oh no, don't do that, that's not cool. It's ironic actually, because you're right, it's not cool. It's very hot. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Now by, by now, those of you who were with us before, you should be used to those questions. Because, again, it sounds really strange. You know, if I was Cain, I would say, what do you mean, God? You don't know? I mean, I thought you're God. You know everything. So why are you asking me? Where is Abel, your brother? I can't find him. Where is he? kind of lost him in the vast expanse of the universe. I lost Abel. Is that what God's saying? He's asking, why is he asking this question? Doesn't he know? Well, he's at, if you have little kids as brothers and sisters, or if you have children... You know exactly why he's saying that. You see your kid, four years old, coming out of the kitchen, just chocolate over the face. Don't you know what he was up to? 
Of course you do. But you look at him and says, well, what do you say? What were you doing? Right? And if the kid was smart, look at you and say, why, you, you can't tell? I thought you were, you were a grown-up. How come you can't tell? But luckily, kids are not that smart. And besides, I feel guilty. Nothing. So what do you do? You try to help them out. Really? Are you sure you were doing nothing? What's that on your face? What? There's, there's nothing on my face. Right? It's exactly what's happening here. Except the answer is nasty. Watch the answer. I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Wow. Okay. So what do you think? You think, okay, he's going to get it. He is going to get it. Right? And the text surprises you. Here's what happens. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. We'll get into this business of cursing later, uh, next week. But uh, for now, observe what happens right after. So, when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Okay, first of all, first of all, what's strange about that? A fugitive. So far, how many people do we know of? Adam and Eve and Abel, who's dead, and Cain. Who's he fugitive from? Where's everybody else? See, there's a specific style going on here. Very specific, so we have to be careful with that. And we'll, again, touch upon that next time. Okay, so you're a wanderer. Now what does Cain say? Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. And again, psychologically, it's incredibly right. When you catch somebody who's done something wrong, what, what is the first emotion they go through? Yes, but which he did, right? Am I my brother's keeper? Guilt? Guilt? No. Say that again? Self-pity. They're worried about themselves. See, the selfishness is so great that, as St. Thomas teaches us, in hell there is pity, but it's self-pity. Unlike charity, where you worry about others. In hell you only worry about yourself. And that's what he's doing. He's only he just killed his brother. You think he cares? No. My punishment is greater than I can bear. I killed my brother in cold blood. But my punishment is greater than... How many of you have read Sophocles? Yeah, that guy. Do they have an accent? I don't like people with accents, you know? <laughs> Sophocles. How many of you have read Sophocles? One, two. A little bit. Hmm. Okay. Sophocles is probably one of the greatest geniuses there are of the antiquity when it comes to depicting human drama. Human drama. Right? All the soap operas are based on Sophocles. Worse versions than his. His was much better. But it is effectively a study of human drama. And you know what? Sophocles is a dwarf compared to the human author, the anonymous human author writing this text. And I'll show you that again next week when we dive a little bit more into this. Because here is the surprising thing. So far, so good. Okay, he's complaining and saying it's really terrible, and now God is just going to give it to him, right? Give it to him. So this is what Cain said. 
My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me this day away from the ground and from thy face. I shall be hidden, and I shall be fugitive and wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will slay me. Never mind who that whoever is, but let's keep on reading. Okay, so he's complaining. What does the Lord do? Then the Lord said, Not so. If anyone slays Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Okay. Wait a minute, God. On whose side are you? On, on, on Abel's side or on Cain's side? This guy just killed his brother in cold murder. And you're saying anybody who kills him will be avenged sevenfold? See, it doesn't, it doesn't compute. Something is wrong. I want you to think about that. Something, something is missing here. Why is God saying that? Not only he says that, but notice what he does. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who came upon him should kill him. And Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Why did he receive this protection? Why is God protecting the evil one? So he's what? Exiled, right? He's been pushed away. Notice what the sacred author talks about. Cain knew his wife. I mean, what's up with that? What about Adam and Eve? What about, you know, their sorrow? They, they lost a child in cold blood. Not a word. Nothing. Cain knew his wife. Why? And she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city. See the telegraphic style? Right? Because otherwise you think he's still in diapers and he built a city. No. Okay. Time went by and he grew up in the city. There's something that the author is after that his audience understands. And we need to capture that. And called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. What is, he, what is the author trying to, to tell us? See, it's very interesting because we think that we, are, we moderns understand a lot better. Actually, we understand a lot less because we miss the whole context. He's saying things the way I would say something to you. If, if I said, for instance, uh, uh, he plays like the, what is the football team we have here again? Yeah. Uh, thanks. Those guys. If I said he plays like the Chargers. I just said a whole bunch of stuff. Mind you, I really don't know what I said because I'm not in football. But I'm sure I said a lot of stuff that you understood by just me saying this one sentence. Haven't I? Or if I said, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. I just brought a whole context into this, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. Without me having to say it all. The same thing is happening here, but we miss the context. We don't have that context anymore. All that we have is the text. That's why it's hard for us to really make full sense of this. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod was the father of Mehujael, and Mehujael the father of Methushael, and Methushael the father of Lamech. Here's a little exercise for you curious out there, especially the Googleite among you. Google those names. Spend a little bit of time Google those names. Why is that listed here? There's a reason. And Lamech took two wives. Here we go again. The name of of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zila. Ada born Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have cattle. 
His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zila bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Okay, if you say so. Why is he pointing that out to us? He, that's what he says. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. And then we keep on reading, right? Why? There is, again, there are reasons for this in the text. And unless we roll up our sleeves and try to dig a little bit, we're going to miss all the graces that God has for us in Scripture. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zila, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, hearken to what I say. I have slain a man for wounding me. Hmm. I have slain a man for wounding me. Alright. And then, a young man for striking me. Is the punishment equal the act? In both cases? No. You understand why the, the law of the Italian, the Italian law, the eye for eye, was actually a huge improvement in justice? Because it said, fundamentally, that the punishment must be proportional to the crime. So if somebody, say, let's say, cuts someone else's hand, that person can't go and kill all the family members. That is not proportional. The idea is you would punish the person in proportion to the crime. That was instituted with the law given to Moses before it was the law of the West. I mean, the ancient West. And then I have slain a man. Cain is avenged sevenfold truly, Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And he takes things in his own hands, doesn't he? God put a mark on Cain. Lamech Takes things in his own hands. Takes things in his own hands. And Adam knew his wife again. You notice how every time the subject changes, it's all about... It's, it's deliberate. It is absolutely deliberate. For a very specific reason. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said... Here we go again. Adam doesn't open his mouth. Not a word. The only one who speaks is... Eve, God has appointed for me another child instead of Abel, for Cain slew him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. The end. This feels like a commercial at the end. We don't have this program to give you this one important announcement. At that time, men began to... <laughs> what... What's it got to do with everything else we're saying right now? Seemingly nothing. You see, many times our lives look like this chapter. A set of haphazard actions. Some under our control, some not. Most not. And most of the time, we don't seem to be able to make sense of our lives. Why is this happening to me? why, why, why? And often, often, we find ourselves in front of a broken mirror and we only see our face in little pieces. And we have a hard time completing the image. Things don't look the way they're supposed to look. 
something is wrong. We may have regrets. We may have things that happened we wish never happened. We have things that, ha- that didn't happen we wish they did. And we have a hard time making sense of it all. And just as this chapter shows us, we can't make sense of it all. On our own, on our own, we cannot make sense of our lives. We do not have the answers. It's only when we take this broken mirror into prayer and we get the face of Christ to reflect on this broken mirror and to make it whole that we can see ourselves the way we truly are. Only Jesus has the answers. But if we don't go to Him in prayer, if we don't sit with Him, if we don't day in, day out, try to spend time with Him, how? How can we see ourselves the way He sees us? And it is only when we see ourselves the way that He sees us that we can be truly happy. Because in His eyes... Those who love Him are brighter than the sun. And we certainly don't see ourselves this way, do we? St. Catherine one day was praying. And then she saw an incredible vision. She had an incredible vision of, of surpassing beauty. And so she knelt in adoration. And then the Lord said, Catherine, what are you doing? And she said, Lord, I thought... These, this being was huge, so beautiful. So I knelt to a door. He said, no, Catherine. This is a person in a state of grace. Do you live your life? Do we live our lives in the state of grace? Is that paramount to us? Is that what we want to do every day? I got some news for you. We're going to die. It's going to happen. I know we live our lives like we're immortal. But it's going to happen for some of us, perhaps tomorrow. Who knows? For some of us, much longer. Are we ready? Do you look forward to die? Do you think of death the way the fathers of the church thought of it? As the antechamber of the wedding. It is that place where you're getting ready to meet the groom of your soul. For an everlasting celebration. Is that how you conceive of death? Or is it this dreadful, dark place that you're afraid of? Where are you going? There's only two places. Heaven and hell. And both are very real. And they're forever and ever. A concept we can't even understand. A hundred million years in eternity is just the blink of an eye. It's nothing. It's forever. This is passing. All of it. What is more important to you? Your salvation? Your soul? Eternity? Or your iPod? Your career? The makeup on your face? The way your hair looks? That's for the gals. And how big of a muscle you got? That's for the gals. Kidding. For the boys. What? What? Why are you here? Why do you live? Those are, those are the, 
many broken pieces of who we are and we tend to push them away and we only look at this little itsy bitsy piece that we think is us. Our projects, the things we want to do now, they're all wonderful, they're all great things. God gave us and we should pursue them. But they're only a small piece of who we are. That's the Christian calling. Meeting Christ face to face and saying, I want to go where you want me to where you want me to go. And one day I want to see you face to face. I want to be with you and I want to love you for all eternity. And I'm going to be like Abel. I'll offer you the best of the best every day. Because you know what? You deserve it. Because I love you. That's the Christian calling. And if we can't say them with the simplicity, if we treat the Lord as a foreigner, if we're embarrassed, if we can't pronounce those words, we've got works to do. And the church is here to help us. She guides us along and she helps us with confession, with communion, with the Mass. All we do studying Scripture leads there. Adoration and knowledge of the Lord. So, between today and next week, take the time. If you have not done it before, set aside a little bit of time to be with the Lord. To pray. To ask Him about who you are and what He wants you to do. Where He wants you to go. What He has in mind for you which is the best of the best. Let him be part of your life every day and see where he's going to take you. And in this way, you and I fulfill the call we've been called to do, which is to live a Christian life. God bless you. Um, ha. We have some time for Questions. Yes, I mentioned the tree of life. No, it's not. There is a prior reference to the tree of knowledge of good and evil and a tree of life. Correct. They could eat from the tree of life before. They were not forbidden to eat from it. Uh, we suspect that the answer is yes. Because the tree of life is what lent immortality. But now, they can't anymore because their nature has changed. Yes. Okay, so the, the question is... Um, uh, in, uh, in Matthew, when uh, Mary was uh, found with child, Matthew says, and uh, Joseph did not know her until she gave birth, or she uh, brought forth his firstborn. And typically, in modern translation, they take until to mean a point in time, which is an inflection, before the action didn't happen, and after the action must have necessarily happened. But there's no such, it's not actually the case. St. Jerome rebutted this one. And he pointed out to many examples in scripture. One in particular, uh, the wife of Misha, the wife of David, um, was, um, was embarrassed when she saw David dancing before the tabernacle as he was bringing into the city of uh, Jerusalem. And she looked at him with contempt. And then it says, and the Lord closed her womb until she died. It's hard to be pregnant after. Okay? And there are many other examples. So no, until does not imply that there is a change of state afterwards. It simply implies a point in time. Alright? Yes. Right. Why were they making offerings? 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 Excellent question. 
Or are they making offerings? Think about that. And the second question is the relationship between... What I said was that when you work the ground, it was considered to be a clean undertaking, whereas shepherds were not. They were considered to be unclean. And actually, they were viewed also as thieves, really. So there is a relationship there between Abel and Cain and their, their behavior, their moral conduct. But is there a relationship between... I mean, the only implication is culture ought to be clean, but that's the only thing I can see. But that's a good question. Any other question? Okay. Oh, well, it's not that anybody's giving them that role. It's what they became. It's, as I said, telegraphic. You, you're, you're taking very brief snapshots across a very long period of time, and you're highlighting a whole story. You're basically telling certain things, and the blanks are known to the listeners. Right? Yes. So the question is, man has free will, but then why do we have to pray that God's will be done if we have a free will, correct? Yes. Because we can choose not to be with God. That's part of our free will. We can choose to be separated from Him. So, after the fall, because of our, the breakdown in our, in our nature, we've lacked grace. And when we pray... Thy will be done. We're basically saying, let our lives f- be filled with grace. Your grace. And hence, we want to be your children. It's a way of you saying to your dad, whatever you say, dad, I'll do. You could not say that. Ah, the question is, the only free will that would have make sense to give up your own free will. Point them to the cross, please. I have not come to do my own will, but the will of one who sent me. The whole essence of love is in what you just said. You tell them, if they are not willing to give up their own free will, let them do themselves and the society at large and a couple of women a favor and let them not marry. Because if a man who wants to marry and is unwilling to give up his free will... I mean, it goes both ways, right? That's the, that's, the, that's the power of marriage. And when you have children, they're going to also tug at you, at, at your free will. Right? Come on, Dad, let's go play. No, I want to watch the Chargers. Right? They will be done. Right? Hmm? Yes. Okay, so what God told them, Bobby, is that if, if, you obey the commandment. If you are faithful to the covenant, you will live forever. If you don't, you shall surely die. So therefore, it was indeed conditional immortality. Correct. When you, once you're in heaven, going back to what you said, interestingly enough, when you're in heaven, you lose the ability to sin. You cannot sin in heaven. Why? Very simple. There's no mystical part to it. You see the truth for what it is. And the truth completely convicts you. And therefore, and you live the life of grace, and you don't sin. Okay? So, it's very different though from, precisely, remember what I said, uh, Bobby, when I, I started by saying, Eden was like a little house, a little training place. It wasn't the real thing. Okay? So, Remember, when they were in the garden, the only, the only restriction was they could not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They could eat from the tree of life. 
and according to St. Ephraim and other fathers, they did indeed eat from the tree of life. There was no restriction. Why wouldn't they? It's a good, it's a very good uh, tree, and therefore, they will definitely eat from it. God wanted them to, otherwise he would have told them not to. But once they fallen, their nature changed. They were now cut off from grace. To live a life being cut away from grace and live forever, number one, detracts from the commandment God gave them, essentially goes against the covenant, because he told them, you shall surely die, and his word will pass. I mean, will not pass, it will happen. And number two, if that tree of life were to maintain them alive, they would be effectively zombies, because they are not living a life of grace. They have to die to attain on to salvation. Correct. That's a very good point, Ramsey. It's exactly what I was alluding to in, in, in stating the fact that the tree of life really is part of the economy of grace. When they have separated themselves from it, receiving it would do nothing but contradict the, or, or violate the, the commandment that God gave them and would only further their punishment and also would keep them alive, which means that they will remain away from the life of grace. Unless a grain falls on the ground and dies, it will not bear fruit. Death becomes, ironically, the path to salvation. And that's the key. Yes. Very good question. So, what is sin? Very good. But in a fundamental sense, what you said is, is true. Fundamentally, sin is not a thing. You see, Sin is the absence of something. And that something is the grace of God. You understand? So sin is the absence of the grace of God. It's the lack of something. When you're in hell, you live in the complete absence of God. So which state are you living in? Constantly. State of sin. And it never stops. So effectively, yes, when you're in hell, when someone is in hell, I don't mean you, sorry. <laughs> when someone is in hell, someone is in hell, there is this notion that he lives in a constant state of sin. And here's the really interesting thing. It's amazing. We know the demons are, are condemned to hell, right? Yet they constantly tempt us. Right. You notice? They are condemned to hell. They know that when the final judgment will come, their punishment in hell will increase because of all the things that I had done against us. And still they do it. And this is how much they hate us. But, they don't, their hate is nothing compared to the love that your garden angel has for you. Do you pray to your garden angel? Yeah. Okay. You don't want your garden angel to go to the office of unemployment, do you? Yes. Very good question. That's the whole part of the whole conversation was leading to him to confess his sin. And yes, there would have been an incredible change. And he didn't do it. And that's why the fathers call this actually the happy fall. Because had Adam not sinned and not persisted in his sin, Christ would not have come. And therefore we would not have been able to attain to the supernatural life. 
We would have lived on earth happily, but naturally, not supernaturally. Okay? Yes. The cross of... What, what the question is, what happened to everyone who died before uh, Christ, right? The cross of Jesus Christ is the summit and the source or the origin of history. It covers forward and backward because the sacrifice of Christ, when joined to His divine... Because Christ is God... Therefore, that sacrifice is eternally joined to Him in heaven and eternally presented before the Father and eternity is outside of time and therefore it covers backward and forward. Perfect example, St. Joseph. He died before Christ. Right? So no, it goes both ways. And that's why it is possible for us to pray for people who died, not when they, I mean, dead, but to ask God that at the moment of their death, their guardian angel would open their hearts to hear the word of God. We can pray this way. Right? Because it can apply backward in time. Correct. He said that. Yes. Before Abraham was, I am. That's indicating his divinity. Yeah. So, it covers all eternity. I mean, it covers all of time. Right? Yes. We, we've, we've covered that, uh, John. The, 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 sh- the cherubim were always seen as the guardians. The protectors of the king. The, the God, it's always because we're easted, remember? We're oriented towards the east. Why? Because this is where the sun rises, and it's the representation of the divinity. All right? You had a question? Okay, I'm sorry. I thought you did. All right. Good. So, God bless you. Uh, drive safely, and see you next week. Father, could we finish with a word of prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.